How you doing? I'm John Norris, and this is The Week in Rock. Last week, Seattle's favorite sons, Nirvana, returned home for their first concert since last fall before 15,000 at Seattle's Coliseum. The band talked at length with MTV News before the show about their success, the present-day Seattle music scene, and Kurt Cobain displayed his talents as a new dad. Here's a look. It's time to burp. Look at those beautiful blue eyes. Yeah, see if you can burp it. <laughs> she's gonna watch this in music comedy. Oh, she's blushing. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> she's blushing. Look at the little flippers. <laughs> I saw Sammy Hagar here about 10 years ago. Well, probably even longer than that. I was in seventh grade. Yeah, it's quite a reception. We're going to walk on stage to uh, Sammy Hagar, to uh, Ozzy Osbourne's, because Mama, Mama, I'm coming home. There's going to be people waving their arms. We're going to come down off like clouds and gently land on stage. Wow. You know, I saw Sammy Hagar here about 10 years ago. And Chris was booted out of here about a year ago. Oh yeah, you're banned from life here. Yeah. You got in trouble at the Sonic Youth show, didn't you? Chris's face is on a Polaroid picture in the office. Banned for life. You blew my cover. Are you glad that Nirvana's back to town? Yeah, sure. That's, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty strange to see him on TV. Yeah. Since we rode big wheels with him. Yeah, we rode big wheels with Kurt. Okay, what do you think? Nirvana's back home. It's gonna be great. We're ready for it. We're ready for it. We've been waiting so long. Seattle! All right. There's no other music like Seattle music. Motherfucks, it's a boys episode down in the Tiege basement. Oh, man. <laughs> Josh, what are we talking about? Oh, I, I think we're talking about that um, band um, Weezer, right? <laughs> are we talking about Sammy Hagar? Wasn't that the whole intro? Yeah, so it's all about Sammy, right? Yeah. Guys, guys. Let's talk Montrose. Ryan wanted to talk about Sammy Hagar so bad. I mean... I, he, dude does get kind of a bad rap. 
But no, let's talk Nirverna. <laughs> Nirverna. That um, sounds like some kind of um, a birth control. You think so? <laughs> Do not take Nirverna if you are allergic to Nirverna. Side effects include third tail. Third? Excuse me, doctor? <laughs> uh, no, we're going to talk about Nirvana because, uh, well, this is a Josh suggest, and I'm totally for it. Fact is, I was never a Nirvana kid. I wasn't either. Oh, boy. Uh, that's, this is a lifelong love. Oh, yeah. Same. I know a little bit, but I not mean, as much I, as Josh. I know. Or TJ. I know, okay, so look, we're, we're, we're going to get into it here. This band changed my fucking life. Absolutely. Like, yeah. holy fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. Just don't want to blow my wad. It's too early in the morning. I know. It's, <laughs> don't come too early. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? This is like the best way to start the day, like on a high. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like I'm going to be riding on cloud nine all day. This is going to be the best day ever. I get to wake up, for one, see you guys. For two, talk about Nirvana for a while, and then I get to take my kids and my wife to Michigan Adventure all day. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Did you bring your bathing suit? Uh, My birthday suit. Oh, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get thrown out. Just me. (laughs) Mike just he he just he just like straps himself to the top of the car. (laughs) You get there and you just see him like running full on naked to the wave pool. He's like, no, I got my banana hammock though. (laughs) Wee. So bad, <laughs> Mike. Okay, yeah. how were you introduced to the band? Were you a fan right away, or uh, I wasn't. I didn't really get into. Uh, I didn't really hear about Nirvana until like I would think like uh, high school, and so like two thousand one to two thousand four. Uh, and I had band. I had friends that were really into uh, Nirvana, and I was really into Chevelle. And oh, nice! Uh, Good name drop. Yeah, I love, still love Chevelle. Um, and uh, like some other bands, like I was getting out of my Disturbed and Corn phase, and <laughs> so, still, still love Disturbed Corn. Uh, <laughs> so you can get out of that. Yeah, you can get out of it. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was. Oh uh, fuck yeah! Oh. Point number one. Are open. He said Chevelle, so I immediately went to this album. This was the album that got me into them because yeah. it's all that. Yeah, isn't this from point number one though? So good. So nice. So that's what happens when I have all the controls. <laughs> yeah, I have this, no control. This was the album that got me into them too. Oh. I, I don't think I've ever gone back on this band. Like a few times I've listened to their singles, but I was like, singer sounded a little too much like a certain tool singer. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. man. Now those first three Chevelle records are bombs. Amazing. So good. I think Chevelle's like it like they sound like kind of like thrice and tool. Yeah, I could see that. Can I see that a little bit. Okay, so you were you were heavily into Chevelle, which there's nothing wrong with. Great band live. I'm sure you've probably seen. <clears> I've him. never seen him live. What? I oh, never man. saw him live. I saw him live. It was incredible. Damn. So, and it was after their second record, so they were playing just the first two records, basically. Jelly. Um. So yeah, you were in your new metal thing, yeah, and yeah. and then you just happened to have friends that were like, "Hey, man, let's." 
here's some Steve Albini produced stuff. <laughs> I had friends that were religiously into Nirvana, and that may have turned me off just because I heard it so much through them. I was like, uh, it's not really for me. Uh, so I would like I would listen to like stuff on the radio uh, back when I listened to the radio before like Spotify or iTunes LimeWire. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was the '90s, folks, and you had good stuff that you dug, mm-hmm. and that's cool. Yeah, Josh. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, this has been like a lifelong thing for me. Uh, I was introduced to Nirvana before, never mind, it was during Bleach. I had an uncle who was uh, a teenager at the time, and he somehow, um, despite being from Alpena, Michigan, uh, had heard of Sub Pop. And I don't know how the connection was made, but he listened to him. And being a uh, young, young lad hearing this music a lot from him it was like well this is cool and uh so i i really enjoyed the music for what it was being a a little kid and i i distinctly i mean i remember kurt lauder going on mtv and announcing that uh cobain was dead and actually feeling something kurt loader yeah loader louder Ah. Loader, I hardly know her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, um, and that was, it was a weird point, you know, but I kind of like was getting out of like, because my uncle, (laughs) he he went away to a place for a while and uh, still there actually. And I kind of stopped listening to music and I started, I got back into Nirvana when I was, uh, probably 13 and if you were to ask anybody I graduated with from high school they were like oh yeah holy shit this dude knew everything about Kurt Cobain knew everything about Nirvana that was pretty much an exclusive band the only band I listened to for years so interesting yeah it's why I started playing guitar actually I remember going to your (laughs) birthday party and I think it was you and I want to say it was Scott. <laughs> Maybe it was. I think I think it was Scott. Uh, you guys had your guitars. I'm like, hey guys, can you teach me how to play "Come As You Are"? And I was like, no, placebo. No, you guys. You guys did like. I think it was. I think it was Scott who was the one who technically taught me how to play it. And it was like within two weeks, I had a guitar. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's. That was the start of a lot of different journeys because of Nirvana for me. Is is this Cranberries playing in the background? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a 90s instrumental music. I love it. Nice. It's great. It's beautiful. All right, Tej. All right. Um, so I was kind of brought up in a pretty conservative home. Uh, parents didn't really allow us, I guess, to mess with much like secular music unless it was like classic stuff like Queen or like Kansas or... I echo that. You know, stuff like that. Um, So, I just remember, I mean, I... I would always listen to to stuff, you know, they they didn't really know, but I didn't really have a way to get the record or anything like that. And I just remember hearing like Teen Spirit on the radio, you know. And I'm just and I always just like what is this freaking song? I need 
I need a way to listen to this. So like, I would just sit there with like a blank cassette and wait for that song to come on the radio, and I would just hit record. And I I got that and like you know Jeremy from Pearl Jam. You're like, shut up, DJ. Yeah. I need to have the whole song. <laughs> I know. I missed two seconds. Crap. Yeah. So like, I would just I would just I would like just hit play for an hour and hope I would get it. You know, mm-hmm. and try yeah. to remember what spot of the tape it was on. But then I would just like listen to it religi- religiously when, once I got it. And you know, within like a year or two, I I think my mo- my real mom who I didn't live with gave me Nevermind. And uh, just, yeah, it, it kind of just went on from there. I, I fell into it. I became obsessed. I got all the records. I got all the, like, outcesticides and all the, like, weird, like, live tracks and B-sides and all the crazy shit. But uh, I was obsessed for a long time. Nirvana was the only thing I listened to for a couple of years, for sure. I mean, they, they had the biggest impact on me in music, I think, probably besides, like, Pearl Jam. Yeah, it was it was wild because especially for anybody who was younger, like you you would find yourself going to every record store possible, uh, like like used records, and like you were combing through everything you could to find an outcesticide. Yeah, uh, I remember freaking out because I was at this in some really small podunk town, and it was an antique store. You found and, one, and there. I found a. The David Geffen Company, they called the DGC yeah. Records, and it had the original version of Stay Away, which was called Pay to Play. Yeah, Pay to Play. Yeah. And I, I found this, and it was like a holy grail moment for me, because it was like, I don't know anyone who else who has this. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the way it was for us back then. It was. The outcesticides were insanely difficult to find. They were... I remember going to Disco Round on 28th Street, like, out in Cascade all the time, trying to, like, look for used, you know, anything Nirvana that I just didn't have. I don't care what it was. Singles, any, you know, the outcesticide stuff, anything. A bootleg show. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. Well, for me, I always attached... Kurt Cobain's voice to grunge and there were so many people that sounded like that specifically for me I felt like that was part of what held me back from listening to Nirvana was like there were two bands that really copied specifically that sounded too much like him and I was like I'm over like everybody was like (laughs) like the Eddie Vedder thing and like I specifically never listened to Pearl Jam and or Nirvana until much 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 later so but now good I timing <laughs> oh yeah uh, but Pearl Jam actually I started to really love about 10 years ago and then later I started to listen to more Nirvana songs intermixed with that and also um, I I think to, even to this day, I, I don't go and and I'm about to get a lot of people are about to cringe, but never a huge fan of, say, Alice in Chains. Oh, really? Bummer. Yeah, because of that vocal style. Yeah. And then, like, as soon as Creed came out, I was like, I hate this. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I can't do that. You needed to accept them with w- arms wide open, man. I couldn't. <laughs> I said... No, no. Oh, I was all about Creed. Uh, Human Clay was loved that album. Man. Tremonti's a great guitar player too. <laughs> nope. 
<laughs> I just can't. I can't. I can't stomach any of it. That's right. I think. I think for a minute I liked their first record when they came out because I was going to like I was going to like Res Life and like kind of looking for you know like rock bands that had somewhat of a Christian, Christian message or whatever and Twelve Stones. They were no, no, no. <laughs> no. I got into like Zayo and Living Sacrifice. Zayo, oh my gosh, yeah. You know, or still remains. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was that was me though. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Make, let there be no mistake. I'm not a Creed fan. I'm yeah, just saying, no. Tremonti. I always thought like I I appreciated him because he, he I thought he was a yeah. decent guitar. Player. No, no. I get I get that too. Like I mean, that was some like he had some cool like drop D stuff. You know, like. And if you like your guitars buzzy, I can understand that. There was one song by them I definitely dug, which was on the fucking Scream soundtrack. My brother and I always talk about this song. But, like, there's... Scary night, isn't it? It's like right out of a horror movie or something. Who is this? <laughs> I get it. I get it. You know what that reminds me of is when we were doing conspiracy therapy, there was a <laughs> the soundboard Larry had of you, and I always thought of that song as you know, like, hee hee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A no. to E to I to O to you. you. <laughs> I mean, look, it's all good. It's all good. Oh. But let's talk about Nirvana. So, <laughs> this was a popular rock band from Aberdeen, Washington. United of the States with the lead single Smells Like Teen Spirit from their 1991 album Nevermind. That song was Nevermind. Fu- every- no. it, was- <laughs> Nevermind. it was everywhere. I mean, seriously, you could not go anywhere without learning. It changed the entire world. This song was literally everybody's favorite. But not at Even first. My dad. Uh, the fun anecdote I have here is. Um, I-, I met a guy in college who was like, Yeah, I saw Nirvana at. Is it in Kalamazoo State Theater or where? Yeah. That's the, yeah. He saw Nirvana play after Nevermind came out. It was like two months after. And he's like, yeah, there was like maybe 20 people there. Yeah. Wow. And then saw them again six months later. And there was it was the arena. It was the music video. Yeah. When that music video came out, everybody was like, holy fucking shit. Yeah. And it's a good music video. I'm. It's okay. iconic. Yeah. I mean, it completely sets the template for the grunge era like it's just you immediately see the chaos yeah are you, are you talking about uh it sm- smells like teen spirit yeah okay yeah, yeah that's a wonderful that was music video kick ass no we're talking about the aqua barbie girl song <laughs> set the template for the 90s yeah barbie girl come on barbie let's go meanwhile we little- <laughs> meanwhile little ryan's like fat 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 i i remember thinking like is that like the sound girls make when they orgasm. <laughs> I yes, hope not. Yes, it is. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, grab the Jurgens. I'm like, they got a block coming up. It's the Barbie Aqua song with the Spice Girls. Oh, Spice Girls. And a No Doubt video. Whoa. <laughs> Might get two faps in here. <laughs> oh, sorry. Table almost broke on that. I got excited. Sorry, folks. Uh, so. 
Nirvana exploded into the mainstream, bringing along with it sub a subgenre of alternative rock called grunge. Other Seattle grunge bands, such as Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, also gained in popularity, and as a result, alternative rock became a dominant genre on radio and music television in the U.S. during the early to middle 1990s. Now, I will say, if I skewed one way when it came to this era of music, it was all about Soundgarden. Oh, fuck yeah. Soundgarden and Nine Inch Nails at the same time were my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. I fucking loved Super Unknown. For, I, to this day, it's in my top ten records of all time. Front to back, love that record. And Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral, front to back. Both of those are in my top ten for sure. Yeah, I would have thought you would also sprinkled in Sonic Youth in there. No, Sonic Youth didn't happen until Lights at Sea for me. Ah, so okay. That okay. was when Scott was like, "You need to listen to these records," and I was like, "Whatever, this cool thing, this is, this band sucks." And then I was like, "No, this band is life changing." Now I was really into uh, Chris Cornell and like Audio Slave and oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, loved that. Did you guys know that like '90s new metal is like literally coming back like hard right yeah, now? It is really? big time. Like all of the like <laughs> I hear people on our Discord and like uh, in our like different threads like on other podcast groups that are like yeah fucking L- Linkin Park and Deftones changed my life mm-hmm. like. Everybody's into it now. I feel like I've been hearing people say that about Lincoln Park though forever. Ever. Yeah. Like since they began, like well the Chester effect. And we'll get into it. Chester has also kind of a Cobain effect in a way. A lot yeah. of these guys He's got do. quite the voice, man. I mean Chester had a very, very powerful it, very impactful, very unique voice that scream was ju- you just know it's him mm-hmm. has so much power behind it um he d- he changed a lot of lives and the, the the melody that those guys you know came up with Ooh, just... remind me later i got something i want to show you yeah yeah as nirvana oh. <laughs> wee wee as nirvana <laughs> come on tj let's go party <laughs> as nirvana's frontman kurt cobain found himself referred to in the media as the spokesman of a generation with nirvana the flagship band of generation <clears throat> x Cobain was uncomfortable with the attention and placed his focus on the band's music, challenging the band's audience with their third studio album, In Utero. While Nirvana's mainstream popularity waned in the months following its release, their core audience cherished the band's dark interior, particularly after their 1993 performance on MTV Unplugged. I remember specifically that performance being like a big deal for everybody and later like I really dug it obviously with the Bowie cover and that was probably my favorite version of one of my top five songs was on that recording I feel almost guilty saying that like I prefer Nirvana's over David Bowie no I know oh, everybody that. does everybody I, does I mean if it, you listen it wasn't to like the... one of the massive Bowie songs you know what I mean but it turned into like a massive Nirvana song yeah it, it, there was just something something about the way Kurt did it, it, for me it was the the end taking that vocal part and turning it into a solo or well, a solo right right and uh, he's doing it with an acoustic guitar and a distortion pedal you know it's just it's just cool as fuck 
super cool. Nirvana's brief run ended with the death of Cobain in 1994, but the band's popularity expanded in the years that followed. Eight years after Cobain's death, You Know You're Right, an unfinished demo that the band recorded two months prior to Cobain's death, topped radio playlists around the world. Since their debut, the band has sold more than 50 million albums worldwide. Uh, see also the their best-selling music artists. I mean, they're in there. Oh, yeah. Including more than... 10 million copies of Nevermind in the U.S. alone. Nirvana remains a consistent presence on radio stations worldwide. All right, so we're going to get into the history since this is a history podcast. In the early years, Cobain and Chris Novoselic met in 1985. Both were fans of the Melvins and often hung out at the band's practice space. After a couple of false starts at forming their own band, the duo recruited drummer Aaron Burkhardt. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Drummer number one. Creating the first incarnation of what would eventually become Nirvana. Cobain later described the sound of the band when they first started as a gang of four and scratch acid ripoff. That's accurate. In the initial months, the pair worked with several drummers, including Dale Crover of the Melvins, who played on their first demos. At the same time, the band went through a series of names, including Skid Row... Pen Cap Chew and Ted Ed Fred. <laughs> Pen Cap Chew was one of my favorites. Yeah, because that ended up being uh, one of the songs that they did. Yep. Did. That just seems like what they did, and they're like, you know, it'd be like if I named a band like Dribble. <laughs> Dri- drip? <laughs> Dripple? Dripple? It speaks for itself, but folks, I mean, you could name something after mundane bullshit you do in your day easily, I guess. Yeah. Worth this is what you do when you're a teenager. Exactly. You know? Anarchy symbol on notebook. I don't know. Yeah. Pentagrams. Pentagrams. What was that just What me? was the S? Um, I had oh, friends the 90s S, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was I like don't six, even know. You did like the six uh, yeah. lines. Yeah, and, yeah, I used to draw it on my folders. I remember I had that. I, was, yeah. I never knew what it meant. It was probably something extremely racist. <laughs> 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 like, shit. Or you mean Storm Guard? I love Slavic people, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, anybody that's not white. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sure that had something, some, some something, variation. Yeah, who knows? The band finally settled on Nirvana in early 1988, playing their first show under the name That March. A couple of months later, the band finally settled on a drummer, Chad, Chad Channing. Ah. Nirvana's first official release was the single Love Buzz slash Big Cheese in 1988. In 1989, the band released its first album, Bleach, on Sub Pop Records. The record had a limited first pressing of a thousand white vinyl records that were sold at the Lame Fest in Seattle. <laughs> the Lame Fest. <laughs> August 8th, 1989. Bleach was highly influenced by the Melvins, I can see that, by the heavy dirge rock of Mudhoney and the 70s rock of Black Sabbath and oh, Led yeah. Zeppelin. It's all over that record. Those are two bands I really do love. It's a heavy... It's, it like, it's one of those... It's funny because if you played Bleach for somebody, they would not know it was Nirvana. No, they wouldn't have a clue. It's way different. It's not... It's not a pop record unless you, you know, you, I mean, what about a girl is what track two yeah. or whatever. And that's like the, that's like the ultimate like Beatles song. You know, that's mm-hmm. like the, that's where you're like, these guys can do this. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. 
but you, you, you have like double bass drumming on there that you don't see later on and yeah um i mean heavy. it's a heavy riffy record i feel like that's probably part of most bands like if you go to like the first album of say radiohead you're like and I always hear this too because I'm a huge Radiohead fan. But like people, are like yeah, the first record I wouldn't. Hear, but it's like, well, there's also the last track, Blowout. You can hear like the guitar experimentation that's going to come later on. Or- yeah, well, that's just it. I think a lot of us, if you if you had the progression that uh, Tej and I had, like you would recommend Bleach still because it right. is a good metal record. It's just not. The same as the other ones. Right. If that makes any sense. No, I get it. So I have a question. So, like, I've never been a huge Nirvana listening fan. Um, but since I knew a week ago we were going to record this, uh, I have been listening to Nirvana all week long. So, okay. like, a lot of their albums. Um, and so I listened to the Bleach one. I really liked it. Um, but, uh, like, why is that heavier versus, uh, some, like, some other albums? Did they just try to do something different, or...? Well, the... I would say that, to some degree, Dave Grohl had an, a, an effect on it, but it was Cobain... Uh, He's just he, refining he was always, himself, really. Yeah. I mean, he just... I think he was, you know, during the Bleach stuff, I mean, he's kind of just kind of getting his early songwriting out there and that's kind of where he was at but then yeah. you know he kind of honed he honed it in kind of figured out what he was really good at honed it in and that's what nevermind ended up being you know it okay. was more like about a girl mm-hmm. you know he was always a pop fan but it was still heavy as fuck i mean nevermind is to me it's a, it's a hard record i mean mm-hmm. they've got a lot of really aggressive songs on it but it's just it's polished Instead of noisy, I mean, no, there's a lot of noise on it too. But the yeah. way that Butch Vig recorded it, you know, he, he kind of just was able to hone everything in. Um, well, yeah, and Sub Pop wasn't exactly, you know, like going to Abbey Road. It wasn't a huge recording place, you know. So right. the production is just not as high either. And and from what I understand, uh, uh, Nirvana took uh, um, uh, rock. Uh, out of the hair metal scene. Right? Oh, yeah. They, they destroyed the hair metal scene. Mm-hmm. They completely fucked it. Well, and he wasn't a huge fan of Guns N' Roses, was he? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Well, no, they, they had major beef, actually. Well, it's it, that's always been a, a hot debate, like whose fault was that? Because, like, didn't they, they did a show together, or they were at a show, and then, like, Axel had made some, like, an Axl Rose comment to Courtney the, Love. Well, the deal was, I think, that Guns N' Roses wanted Nirvana to come on tour with them, and I don't think Nirvana was into that, and so Axl had made some comment about Courtney backstage at the 92 Music Awards or whatever, and then... What was the comment? <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> like keep your, He said to Kurt, like, keep your woman in line or something. Yeah. Um, or like, something derogatory. Like and no, I can't see him saying that at all. Like, he... he, he <laughs> Hey, well, he was, woman yeah, he was. He was Calm like, "Down, Axel." He said something like, "Kurt, like, tell your woman to shut her fucking mouth." And then Kurt just looked at her and was like, "Hey, woman, shut your fucking mouth." <laughs> like, I do what Daddy says. Yeah, and she was like, "That's it. I'm gonna plan your assassination." <laughs> no. I didn't know she just became kidding. Paul Stanley. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> 
Just saying. There was a there was a we did a conspiracy therapy uh, on the conspiracy behind that. We're just gonna skip that because this is a new show. We're we're a glass half full podcast. No conspiracies I today. I can't remember. Did I put in there the the cost for bleach? Mm-mm. Yeah, cause, uh, it, you can just ballpark it in your head if you. Well, have okay. Idea. So on the cover of Bleach, if you look at it, it shows four four people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth person in the picture playing guitar is Jason Everman, and who actually he, was in Soundgarden for a little bit. Yeah, right before they got famous. Yeah. Uh, he he paid the six hundred dollars. It was six hundred and sixteen dollars, I think, technically, for the cost of recording Bleach, and. Subs, uh, like ended up going on tour with the band, but then was kicked out of the band afterwards. But they put him on the cover because they're like, "Oh, well, he's paying for it." Thanks for the record, guys. <laughs> See you later. So then he go. Oh, yeah, actually, you know what? I have this. I have a fun like. Where are they now at the end of this? So okay, cool. sweet. I know uh, where Kurt Cobain is, <coughs> or isn't. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Ryan just almost had a face full of coffee. Uh, so, Nova Selleck noted in a 2001 interview with Rolling Stone that the band had played a tape in their van while on tour that had an album by the Smithereens on one side and an album by the black metal band Celtic Frost on the other and noted that the combination probably played an influence as well. Bleach became a favorite of college radio stations nationally, but gave few hints of where the band would find itself two years later. The money for the recording sessions for Bleach listed at, oh, interesting, as $606.17 on the album's sleeve was supplied by Jason Everman. Everman was introduced to Cobain by Dylan Carlson, but had known Channing since the fifth grade. He started hanging out with the band and offered to loan the money to them for the recording. Though he did not actually play on the album, Everman was credited for playing guitar and bleach because, according to Nova Selleck, they, quote, wanted to make him feel more at home in the band. After the album was completed, Everman had a brief and contentious stay with the band as a second guitar player, but was sacked following their first U.S. tour. Not long after, he briefly played bass with Soundgarden before joining the band Mind Funk. In early 1990, the band began work with producer Butch Vig on recordings for the follow-up to Bleach. During the sessions, Kurt and Chris realized that Chad was not the drummer the band needed and he was let go after the sessions were complete. After a few weeks with Dale Crover of the Melvins filling in, they hired Mudhoney Mud drummer Dan Peters, with whom they recorded the song Silver, or Sliver. Yep. Sorry. Later that year, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins introduced them to Dave Grohl, who was looking for a new band following the sudden breakup of DC hardcore punk Scream. Ah! Never mind. <laughs> All right, so following repeated recommendations by Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, oh, I love her, David Geffen signed Nirvana to DGC Records in 1990. The band subsequently began recording its first major label album. The result, Nevermind, is now widely regarded as a classic. For the album, the band decided to continue working with Vig. Rather than recording at Vig's Madison studio as they had in 1990, the band shifted to Sound City Studios in Los Angeles. For two months, the band worked through a variety of songs in their catalog. Some of the songs included In Bloom and Breed. 
had been in the band's repertoire for years, while others, including On a Plane and Stay Away, lacked finished lyrics until midway through the recording process. After the recording <laughs> sessions were completed, Vig and the band set out to mix the album. However, a few after a few days, both Vig and the band realized they were unhappy with how the mixes were turning out. As a result, they decided to call on someone else to oversee the mixing, with GGC supplying a list of possible options. The list contained several familiar names, including Scott Litt, known for his work with R.E.M., and Ed Stasem, known for his work with the Smithereens. However, Cobain feared that bringing in known mixers was re- would result in the album sounding like the work of those bands. He decided to choose the guy at the bottom of the list next to that name, Slayer, Andy Wallace. Wallace had co-produced Slayer's 1990 album Seasons in the Abyss. You ever been a Slayer fan? I know you like metal. I never got into Slayer. I know Rain and Blood. And uh, fun fact, uh, speaking of Slayer, I just ordered this amazing beer called, uh, it's a it's a blood orange beer uh, from Dark Horse Brewing Company in uh, Kalamazoo, I think. Maybe not. Anyways, it's, it's called Rain and Blood. And it's awesome. it's awesome. Uh, what about Celtic Frost? Did you ever listen? Do you like older metal? Like, uh, I mean, I guess it depends. Like, I, I've never heard of Celtic Frost. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. Ow. Are you still listening to a lot of the black? Yeah, a lot of gaze? black gays. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy, Mike. Not white gays. <laughs> Not Christian gays. Wallace yeah. brought to the album a completely different mindset, adding layers of reverb and studio trickery to give the album a glossy polish. A few months after the album's release, Cobain complained in the press that Wallace had made Nevermind sound too slick, even though Wallace had been his own choice and the band themselves had been involved in the mixing process. Even if the band was disappointed at the sound of the album, Wallace had successfully tempered the band's indie rock leanings and created a mainstream, ready rock sound that others would attempt to duplicate for the next decade. <laughs> hey, brother! <laughs> Initially, DGC Records was hoping to sell 250,000 copies of Nevermind, which was the same level they had achieved with Sonic Youth's Goo. Instead... The album was certified triple platinum, 3 million copies in the U.S. less than six months after its release. Smells Like Teen Spirit received heavy airplay on MTV, inspiring a slew of imitators and bringing the grunge sound into the mainstream. The popularity of alternative rock as well as the sidelining of hair metal is often credited to Nevermind. In January of 1992, the album reached the top of the Billboard album charts, replacing Michael Jackson's album Dangerous, an act often considered the defining symbol of the rise of alternative music over pop. Citing exhaustion, the band decided not to undertake another U.S. tour in support of Nevermind, instead opting to make a handful of performances later that year. I remember watching a documentary... And when the final mixes came in, Chris played that, or sorry, Kurt played them for his mother. And his mom just looked at him and said, You better be ready because you're about to be famous. Yeah, get ready, motherfucker. Yeah. Which is exactly what I told TJ when I, Still Remains recorded <laughs> of Love and Lunacy. <laughs> yeah. Didn't happen, though, bud. <laughs> <laughs> 
Actually, I never was there. I was in the Navy at the time. But I know he's such a sweetie and his music's so he good. He knows that's what you would have said. That's right. In February 1992, following the band's Pacific Rim tour, Cobain married Courtney Love in Hawaii. Love gave birth to a daughter, Frances Bean. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. The wedding itself is funny as fuck because she's like, you know, wearing this beautiful white, you know, dress. It's not like a traditional wedding dress, but it is a wedding dress. And Kurt showed up in pajamas. Yeah, he's in PJs. It's great. (laughs) Like blue flannel. I mean, it's funny, but it's also kind of disrespectful. I think it's just. It's it's see here's the thing here's where we have to differentiate a little that's bit. so Cobain <laughs> it, it, it is so Cobain but also you you oh she looks like a skis though yeah <laughs> yeah she, to- she totally looked like a freaking skis I mean <laughs> sorry sorry Courtney like no, don't apologize he's like oh I found this no I'm not gonna say that I'm not gonna say that okay look you know I don't. Ha- there's yeah. a, there is a difference. There's two different paths we much we must choose as men. We either have to grow up, or we continue to, you know, wear live, our pajamas in wear our public. pajamas and <laughs> not understand why people have to wear shoes in Walmart to get fucking cocoa puffs. You don't find that out until you're after 27, though. I understand. So he was still was the problem. relatively young, but still, come on, buddy. I'm just saying. Anyway, just uh, so they had a daughter, Frances Bean, the following August. Just days after Frances Bean's birth, Nirvana performed one of its best-known concerts, headlining at the Reading Festival in England. Cobain entered the stage in a wheelchair as a practical joke and then proceeded to get up and join the rest of the band in tearing through an assortment of old and new material. At one point in the show, Cobain related to the crowd the recent birth of his daughter and succeeded and having the crowd chant, Courtney, we love you, in unison. Dave Grohl related in 2005 on the radio program Loveline that the band was genuinely concerned beforehand that the show would be a complete disaster given all that had happened in the months leading up to the show. Instead, the performance ended up being one of the most memorable of their career. Less than two weeks later, Nirvana put out a memorable performance at the MTV Video Music Awards. MTV had wanted the band to play Smells Like Teen Spirit, but the band wanted to play a new song called Rape Me. MTV was appalled, at the, I- me. <laughs> was appalled at the idea of a song called Rape Me and eventually agreed that the band could play Lithium instead, the band's then-current single. When the band began their performance, Kurt strummed and sang the first few bars of Rape Me, giving the MTV executives a solid shock and probably a shit before jumping into Lithium. But that was on the radio, though, wasn't it? Rape Me? Oh, well, later on, yeah. Like, I mean, me? look, they were going to... Wave me. <laughs> they literally were going to milk this puppy for all the dollars they could get later after Kurt died. Because, like... And that's the part of it that feels kind of ucky. If I'm going to be real. If I'm going to be pajama Ryan for a minute. You should be in your pajamas. It's early enough. It, well... <laughs> Skis Ryan. Well, that's the thing. Like, if you want to talk about very recent, um, uh, what's her name? Sinead O'Connor. Like, with her dying, she had left a thing, a note for her kids. Like, if I die, before you call the police, 
You need to call the accountant and make all this stuff happen because the record companies are going to do whatever they can to milk the fuck out of the fact that I'm now dead. Mm-hmm. And because all musicians become suddenly more famous when they die. Oh, yeah. Like, if you look at the album sales charts for, say, like Michael Jackson or Nirvana or Tupac or Tupac, uh, you know, look at Prince. You know, they he Prince. had all the locked up material because he did not want it to come out. Mm-hmm. And then he dies, and the estate's like, Oh, well, we want some extra money, so let's sell <laughs> some of this off. So, you yeah. guys are going to be worth a lot when you die, right? Because you're all musicians. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, when I'm. <laughs> When I go, they're gonna want to milk it for all it's worth. <laughs> you guys will be able to go to the spend a couple extra dollars on the dollar menu at McDonald's. Yeah, there you go. Look, it's it's a sad world when we capitalize on people's deaths, but it's very real and very true. Yeah, people have a morbid sense of curiosity when an artist passes, and look. I'm sorry, but I'm sure the same thing happened with Linkin Park. The same thing happens with all musicians and all bands. Oh, yeah. Your bands all of a sudden start start charting again, mm-hmm. you know? And, I mean, I get that. It's big news. That's right. why you it's should big fake news. your death. <laughs> and it's, if it's a, an artist or a band that you kind of liked, you're like, oh, man, I'm sad now. I'm going to listen to them because I, I loved their material. So, it's only natural. And, and there's going to be some record exactly going, yes. <laughs> True. Anyway, so we got to finish the Glassfield record before I pass. That way, like when I pass, I don't want you to ever you can, pass. Yeah, next year when I die, <laughs> you guys will all be rich. I'm just kidding. I don't want to be rich. I just want to be happy. <laughs> That's what I said. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, check the tape. Uh, so obviously, this record was a big deal. Uh, they had these great performances, which you should definitely check out. Uh, they had the Video Music Awards. Like you said, we told that story. Incredible. Um, so so iconic. Uh, near the end of the song, frustrated that his amp had stopped, malfunction- <laughs> stopped functioning, Novoselic decided to toss his bass into the air for dramatic effect. He misjudged the landing, and the bass ended up bouncing off of his forehead. Oh, well, he oh, also did, did like he lost that, it in the lights, like because the lights were you know so bright that he kind of also <laughs> lost it, and so it came down and cracked him. So oh, I haven't seen it. No. He takes the bass off, and at the time, I mean, Chris Novoselic is like he's like six foot six or eight he looks or like something. He's eight ten. Yeah, stage. he's giant. And he's got this like long hair, and he's super kind of like. Tall, skinny, gangly, clumsy looking. Mm-hmm. So he tosses this fucking bass so high up. And you can see him like looking up <laughs> and his hair is kind of just like, you know, down. And he kind of like, he's putting his arms up in the air. And he's kind of moving back and <laughs> forth like, where'd he go? <laughs> it just comes and just slams him in the head. He falls down and... <laughs> Oh, I'll show you too, Ryan. Kurt kicks him in the ass as he's like moving off stage because he doesn't realize that he actually hurt himself, but he had to go get stitches. Sorry, I just finished your whole thing you were reading. No, it's hilarious. But I mean, yeah, we'll post the clip on the Facebook or the um, the, the funny thing is, is after the event, 
so they they get off stage and Dave was like trying to find him. Like he, he had no idea where he went. Oh, Jesus Christ! And he ended up. <laughs> He's like, oh. Yeah, and, and then Kurt goes over and kicks him. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then they proceed to smash all their shit on stage, which I freaking oh, yeah. love. It's great. I, I wish mean, I could do that. After it, when they found Chris, eventually he was sipping champagne with Brian May. Yeah. From Queen, they're just hanging out. <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna come down from your wounds, that's the way to do it. Yeah, like, oh yeah, this giant performance we did. Now I'm gonna go hang out with you know this iconic guitar player and drink champagne. Hell I mean, yeah, yeah. That I, that there somewhere in there is a short play on the '90s grunge era. Just exactly. in that entire like sequence. Um, okay, so like I said, we as Cobain trashed their equipment, Grohl ran to the mic and began yelling hi Axel <laughs> repeatedly referring to Guns N' Roses singer <laughs> Axel Wells with whom, hi, the, Axel. <laughs> with whom the band and Courtney had had a bizarre encounter prior to the show Nirvana released Incesticide a collection of rarities and b-sides in December of 1992 many of Nirvana's BBC radio sessions and unreleased early recordings were starting to circulate via trading circles and illegal bootlegs so the album served to beat the bootleggers to the punch the album contained such fan favorites as Sliver, Dive, Been a Sun, and Aneurysm, as well as covers of songs by the Vaselines, a band that became more popular as a result of Nirvana's covers. Mm-hmm. In Nudero. In For 1993's In Utero, the band brought in producer Steve Albini. Perhaps best known for his work on the Pixies album Surferosa. Pixies are going to get their own uh, podcast. And uh, in Glassfield. In Glassfield, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The sessions with Albini were productive and notably quick. The initial version of the album was recorded and mixed in two weeks, a far cry from the months spent recording and mixing, never mind. Bringing in Albini appeared to be a deliberate move on Nirvana's part to give the album a raw, less polished sound, as if the band wanted to alienate or distance themselves some of their new mainstream audience who had paid little or no attention to the alternative, obscure, or experimental bands Nirvana saw as their forebears. I have to disagree with that, though. Pretty strongly. Because In Utero has a different sound than Nevermind for sure. However, Kurt was, he had his songwriting still completely honed in. It's just the yeah. material he was writing was a bit like, it was, it was a bit aggressive. noisier. It was still aggressive. It was just. Can I, can yeah. I, can I posit a little point here? Yeah. I don't think bands are as intelligent as people want to put out there. And the mythology is way too dense that people like to cook up i think a band is a band it's a bunch of dudes who get together and jam yeah and literally whatever sounds the best is what the band puts out. exactly it has nothing to do with some deep meditations on anything no literally he went to a new studio which is a smart idea and that's why it sounds different right that's i mean if, if they would have done in utero with butch vig it would have sounded a lot like Nevermind, honestly. It's just the songs are a little moodier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there's some songs on there that are just as loud and, uh, you know, noisy. You have, like, Tourette's, yeah. you know, radio-friendly unit shifter, which is just pure noise. That's my fucking jam. That fucking song is yeah. my fucking Oh, it's... it's God dang. It's great. <laughs> that song is awesome, Mike. Yeah? Yeah, put that, like... Uh, uh, l- l- it's l- let him me look turning it on his distortion, his chorus, and just... Like 
standing back, letting it the feedback. That's the guitar part. That's, yeah, which and, is kind of my jam too. Like that's I like chaos when it comes to recording and, yeah, and the, instruments and all that sort plug of. Plug that in. I, I'm not sure if I can plug in. I can play it through YouTube though. Um, Radio friendly unit. Show. Play the. Uh, the MTV live and, live and loud version of that. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. It sounds very close to the record, actually. I mean, Kurt's voice is, like, really clean. Um, and they do the same kind of... I mean, I think that they probably sample that the feedback they from the record. To. They have to, because it sounds identical. Still, though, so sick. It's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, then it's a bridge, and then probably another chorus, I think, and then like noise outro. It's 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 a never mind pop structure of a song. Mm-hmm. It's just louder and noisier. But if Butch Vig would have recorded it, mm-hmm. he would have he it would have sounded a lot like Never Mind. I think. To go from you know even on the record from that to Tourette's, it's just constant like aggressive noise. Mm. Well, I, I, I kind of did it. We did a song like that on uh, Glassfield. That one uh, we had uh, the dance macabre. It, it was just going to be noise in between and a bass riff, and so well, which is awesome, by the way. And that's the thing. Like, I think that Chris doesn't ever get the respect he deserves because oh, when you God. listen to hit what just him. The dude's a phenomenal bass player. He's a punk bass player. He's fucking awesome. Knows his way right around the neck, and he's mm-hmm. he's right, just syncopated with with the drums. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing is is boosting the guitar. Yeah. And every I don't know. I don't think Nirvana Nirvana would have made it to way that where they are without Chris's bass playing. I totally agree. He's incredible. Seriously, he's one of my favorite bass players. He really is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's the the big thing when it comes to bass. You you want your low end punchy. You kind of want a punk rock bass player. Absolutely. You know, and like that's one of the great 
blessings of my having my brother around is he's more of a punk, but he's definitely a technical player too. Yeah. So you get to see both sides with, with great. someone like that. He knows how to transition. He knows how to do a fill just like a drummer. He's just doing it on a bass guitar. Exactly. This one goes out to those 2000s Linkin Park fans. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's just like, <laughs> yeah. Mike, what do you think? All eyes on me. Uh, so, following the release of In Utero, fans fell under the impression that the band wanted this distorted masterpiece. However, in reality, the band was actually unhappy with certain aspects of Albini's mixes. Specifically, they thought the bass levels were too low, and Cobain felt that Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies didn't sound perfect. Longtime REM producer Scott Litt was called in to help remix those two songs with Cobain adding additional instrumentation and backing vocals. At the request of the label. He didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. The the label wanted it to be a more commercial kind of sounding record, kind of like Nevermind with more harmonies and things cleaned up a little bit. And they had him go back to the studio and do some of that. I always wondered, in all apologies, the studio version... There's a part where he fucks up the guitar part, and it's kept in the recording. And I always wonder if that was intentional. I doubt it was intentional. Well, I mean, like oh, to keep it in though. Oh, probably. I, I mean, just the way that Albini records. I mean, if if it's something where he, you know, and it, so how do I put it? Like Steve wants you to be very like you. You have to be able to capture everything live, and. uh you have to be tight live and stuff like that. And if there's a mistake or something, if it kind of like isn't super duper noticeable, but yet kind of like adds character to the song, mm-hmm. he'll want to keep stuff like that in there. Voice cracks, feedback, you know, all that shit. I, I, pick, pick slides, whatever. That's that's my that's one why when I talk to people about recording music, like the Albini effect yeah like i i love that that there's imperfections yeah yeah that's yeah absolutely imperfections that. make it not ai exactly you don't want it to say people like a performer's play style when it comes to the music mm-hmm. and when it comes to the vocals they like the humanity yeah so you can take it like i know we we talked about ai and like them doing that ai version of a nirvana song right and as cool as it sounded, there was still that party D, that uncanny valley that happens when you watch something like Jurassic World or Transformers Fall of the D- Digimon or whatever it's called. <laughs> Here's the fuck up right here. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's during the second verse. Waiting on a fuck up. Oh, I know what you're talking about. The boom, Yeah, like right here. Yep. Yep. Keep it. Print it. Absolutely. I have fuck ups on the Glassfield yeah, it, record. I'm it, the only one that hears it. That's why after I know. hear all your mess ups, <laughs> but I love them. I'm, I'm being serious. I'm being yeah. serious. I mean, but that's part of your like. It goes along with your style. It's not. It's not like your mess ups. It's just your style. You're hitting notes that are unintentional. You know, like they ring out things like that that mm-hmm. might not be a part of the riff you wrote, but it adds so much character to the songs. You know, and that's I love that about your playing. You know why? 
You know why though, right? I'm, I'm not trying to jerk you uh, off. <laughs> Jerking you off under the table. <laughs> uh, because because everybody is so focused on becoming a shredder and to play clean and to just be tight. And the thing is, is like, and this is just my personal taste, but I feel like when people can just like, just hammer on their guitars, not worry about the, like the, the, I guess, messiness or the, like the wrong notes that might be accidentally hit. Like if you're playing with your heart, you can hear that. And those, and those, I guess you want to say quote mess ups or whatever. Yeah. Like, or imperfections. Like, they don't do anything but add to the greatness of the song. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, Nirvana. Thank you, Teach. Absolutely. I that love was you, great. bud. Yeah. So, with Inutero, the band also faced corporate <laughs> censorship. Giant store chains, Kmart, and Walmart refused to carry the album, citing titles like Rape Me and Kurt's Plastic Fetus. <laughs> <laughs> and Kurt's Plastic Fetus collage on the back cover is too controversial for the family-oriented chains. The band decided to abide by the request and compiled a version of the album with clean artwork and Rape Me retitled Wafe Me. <laughs> yeah, Wafe Me. Other than the inclusion of Lit's mix of Penny Royal Tea... Um, oops, shit. I hit the wrong button there. But Albini's version was used on the album. Lit also, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Lit also remixed Penny Royal Tea, but Albini's version was used on the album. Uh, however, the music on the album was identical to the wider release. When asked about the edited version, Kurt noted that he could relate to the small-town residents that had no other local music stores and were forced to buy their music at Kmart. So he felt bad for people who had to get like edited versions. While Heart Shaped Box was received warmly by alternative and mainstream radio and in utero debuted at number one on the Billboard album chart, the album did not enjoy the same success, success as Nevermind. When the band embarked on the U.S. in, in utero tour, its first major tour of the state since the success of Smells Like Teen Spirit, it regularly played the half-filled arenas stymied by the lack of tour support for Nevermind and the challenging new release. For touring in support of In Utero, the band added Pat Smear of the punk rock band The Germs as a second guitarist and then future Foo Fighters guitar player. In November 1993, the band decided to change direction and sat down for an appearance on MTV Unplugged. The sessions revealed the depth of Cobain's songwriting, which had often been buried under the sonic fury of the band sound. They also... um because it's for some reason it's always forgotten because uh, they added Pat and everyone knows about Pat. They also added Melora Krieger, who would go on to do Rasputina um, as the cello player. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Became a hallmark uh, moment. This uh, MTV Unplugged, obviously, and uh, they chose really good cover songs. Um, in early 1994, the band embarked on a European tour. While the tour started off well, the performances gradually declined, with Kurt looking bored and distracted during the shows, particularly during the Italian leg of the tour. Following a tour stop at Terminal 1 in Munich, Germany, on March 1st, Cobain was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. The next night's show at the same venue was canceled. On the morning of March 4th, Love found Cobain unconscious and he was rushed to the hospital. The doctor told a press conference that the singer had reacted to a combination of prescription ropifenol and alcohol. 
The rest of the tour was canceled, including a planned leg in the UK. In the ensuing weeks, Cobain's heroin addiction resurfaced. An intervention was organized, and Cobain was convinced to check into drug rehabilitation. After less than a week in rehabilitation, Cobain climbed over the wall of the facility and flew back to Seattle. A week later, on Friday, April 8th, 1994, Cobain's illness uh, claimed him, and his lifeless body was discovered by an electrician at a Seattle home, effectively dissolving Nirvana. Yeah, their last show was played in Rome, um, which is one of the, that was another, like, kind of a holy grail if you could find the, the bootleg of that show. True. After Cobain's death, several Nirvana albums have been released since uh, have been released since Cobain's death. The first came in November of '94 with the release of the band's performance for MTV Unplugged, MTV Unplugged in New York. This album included guest appearances by members of the Meat Puppets, as well as cover versions of songs by the Meat Puppets, Lead Belly, The Vaselines, and David Bowie. Two weeks after the release of Unplugged in New York, a video compilation of Nirvana and performances titled Live Tonight Sold Out was released. Cobain himself had compiled a significant part of the video which documented much of the Nevermind tour. Memorable footage from the video included an infamous incident with a bouncer at a Texas club in October of 1991, as well as the band's performance of aneurysm donned in dresses at the Hollywood Rock Festival in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in January 1993. The original intention was to release the MTV Unplugged set in a double-disc package along with a second disc of live electric material to balance the acoustic set. However, for the two surviving band members sorting through the treasure trove of Nirvana recordings so soon after Cobain's passing became too emotionally overwhelming. The live disc, a compilation of Nirvana concert recordings, finally saw release in October of 1996 titled From the Muddy Banks of the Wishka. Wishka. Um, you guys fans of those records? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in August of 1997, online music news website Wall of Sound reported that Grohl and Novoselic were organizing a box set of Nirvana rarities. Four years later, the band's label announced that the box set was complete and would see release in September to coincide with the 10th anniversary of the release of Nevermind. However, shortly before the release date, Love filed an injunction to stop the box set's release and sued Grohl and Novoselic, claiming that Cobain's former bandmates were hijacking Nirvana's legacy for their own personal interests. What followed was a protracted legal battle over the ownership of Nirvana's music that lasted for more than a year. Much of the legal legal wrangling centered on a single unreleased song, You Know You're Right, the band's final studio recording. Grohl and Novoselic wanted to include the song in the box set, essentially releasing all of the rarities at one time. Love, however, argued that the song was more important than just a generic rarity and should be included on a single-disc Greatest Hits compilation. After more than a year of other public and sometimes bizarre legal maneuvering, the parties settled, agreeing on the immediate release of the Greatest Hits package, including You Know You're Right, titled simply Nirvana. In turn, Love agreed to donate cassette demos recorded by Cobain for use on the box set. Nirvana fans' first taste of You Know You're Right came in early 1995 when Love played a version of the song with her band Hole on MTV unplugged under the title You've Got No Right. A live rough draft version of the song performed by Nirvana at the October 23, 1993 concert at the Aragorn Barrel Room in Chicago surfaced in Nirvana's tape trading circles a few months later. In that year, 
that followed rumors of the existence of a studio version of the song perpetuated through Nirvana's fan base and grew to almost mythic proportions. For fans, the first real confirmation of the studio version existence came in November 2001 when Access Hollywood aired a 10-second clip of the song as part of an interview with Love. In May 2002, several longer clips surfaced to the internet via an unknown source who claimed he was planning to release the entire song. However, the source backed down, fearing legal action as the court case neared completion in September 2002. The entire song unexpectedly leaked days before the announcements of the release of Nirvana. I almost feel like Kurt would have just wanted it released. If he had known what the internet was going to be, he would have just wanted it all out there for free. Because he, if there's anything I can gain from his insight and the way he reacted to having the neutero different versions, I think he would have wanted everyone to have everything out there. Mm-hmm. He was, most of his life, a poor kid. So, yeah. Anyway, that's my take. On top of You Know You're Right, the album contained hit singles from the three studio albums, as well as several alternative mixes, including recordings of familiar Nirvana songs. Following its release, many longtime fans complained about the song selection, noting that the alternative alternate version of Been a Son from the Blue EP was not the band's uh, preferred version, and that the disc lacks songs such as Sappy released as verse, chorus, verse. That had received significant radio airplay in the U.S. following Cobain's death. Fans outside the U.S. questioned the inclusion of the unplugged version of All Apologies as opposed to the single version from In Utero. In the Bleach version of About a Girl, where the unplugged version was a popular single in 1994. Also, with a running time of under 50 minutes, there was certainly ample space to include other popular songs such as Love Buzz, Drain You, Aneurysm, and Where Did You Sleep Last Night. The box set with the lights out was finally released in November 2004. The release contained a vast array of early Cobain demos, rough rehearsal recordings, and live tracks recorded throughout the band's history. Of note to serious Nirvana fans were unfinished studio recordings of old age and verse chorus verse, different from Sappy, recorded during the Nevermind sessions. Another notable track on the box set was a solo acoustic demo of a song called Do Re Mi, ah. recorded by Cobain in his bedroom. It should have been it should have been Beans. The song showed that even in the turmoil of his final days, Kurt still had the gift for melody that he demonstrated so many years earlier in songs like About a Girl. A Best of Box compilation titled Sliver, The Best of Box, was released in the fall of 2005. The CD compiled 19 tracks from the box set, plus three previously unreleased tracks, including a version of the song Spank Through from the fabled 1985 Fecal Matter demo tape. (laughs) According to Rolling Stone, Cobain's daughter, Frances Bean, aided in the selection of the title and cover art. In a 2002 interview with with Jim DeRogatis, that was like a venereal disease, (laughs) Love described the countless rehearsal tapes, demos, and bedroom recordings that were left behind after Kurt's death. For example, a four-track version of Do Re Mi was apparently recorded with Kurt on drums, Pat Smear on guitar, and Eric Erlandis' son on bass. Whether anything from the remaining archive will ever see released remains to be seen. Where are they now? Chris, uh, or Chris, after the end of Nirvana, Novoselic formed Sweet 75. More recently, he founded Eyes Adrift with Kurt Kirkwood, formerly of Meat Puppets, and Bud Gaw, formerly of Sublime. He also performed in a one-off band called the No W. 
T.O. combo with Kim Thale of Soundgarden and Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. That coincided with the W.T.O. meeting of 1999. Nova other credits include playing bass on a song performed by Johnny Cash for the 1996 Willie Nelson tribute album Twisted Willie. <laughs> <laughs> As well, as that's a professional wrestling move. As well as interesting, uh, as twist well, his dick, <laughs> twist his dick. <laughs> as well as playing Farfisa organ on "Against the 70s for Mike Watts' 1995 album "Ball Hog" or "Tugboat." Novoselic also became a political activist, founding the Political Action Committee Jam Pack to push musicians' rights. In 2004, he released a book titled Of Grunge and Government, Let's Fix This Broken Democracy, which covered his musical part as well as politi- political endeavors. During the 2004 presidential campaign, uh, campaign Grohl and Novoselic appeared on stage in support of the John Kerry campaign. Dave, obviously, you've got Foo Fighters. Probot. Probot. Uh, them Queens Crooked the Vultures, Love. Queens of the Stone Age, yeah. Tenacious D. Interesting stuff. The guy's good. He has a book out. You should check it out. It's called Song Man? Songbird? So I think it's is it <laughs> Songbird. Songs and just Google Dave Grohl. You, Jason they don't Everman. need to. They know who he is. It's, Jason, isn't it? It's stories of something, isn't it? I'm a storyteller. Storytellers. Storytellers. Yeah, storytellers. Something like that. Jason yeah. Everman. After playing guitar with Nirvana and Mindfunk and bass in Soundgarden and Old, he later served, served tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan and the U.S. Army as an Army Ranger and Green Beret. As of May 2017, Everman plays guitar in a military veteran band called Silence and Light. Thank you. That's been your episode. Bye. All right. No, everyone, <laughs> top five Nirvana songs. Josh. Oh, boy. You guys want me to start. Okay. I have my list right here. I'm up my num- and this is not in order. I could not do that. Uh, number one, Mr. Mustache from Bleach. Um, I have that on here because that was the f- I was learning how to play guitar and a lot of Nirvana songs I thought were pretty pretty simple for the most part, but that song was a challenge. Just because it's it's a very driving guitar riff and you there's no room for fuck up, so loved it. Uh, my second one is Aneurysm. Um, because it's a fun guitar song. Um, the first time I heard it was on the uh, Teen Spirit, because it was a B, the B-side to Teen Spirit, the single. Um, my third one is Drain You, mm-hmm. because it is probably one of it's probably one of my favorite uh, pop songs that they did, uh, and the bridge on that song is wicked rad. That's so cool. When I'm getting a twisted Willie, I like to <coughs> drain me. Drain you? <laughs> <laughs> That's where my brain's going. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, my fourth track is Scentless Apprentice. Uh, Dave Grohl's a star on that song. Uh, Kurt Cobain's vocals are very raw, aggressive. Everything about that song is fucking awesome. And my final song is School. Yeah, dude. From, from Bleach. Uh, it's the... When you listen to the Muddy Banks of the Wishka... Um, the chorus. It's the... No reason. 
Yeah, it's so, like, so good. Ah, so good. Like, it's how they open the, the show on there. And it's just, it, the guitar riff is super, it's easy, but it's super fun. It's driving. It, yeah, it's nothing but driving. Like, I got goosebumps because, like, yeah, I yeah. love playing that song so yeah. much on guitar. It's fun. So, um, yeah, and I mean, I, I, I could easily throw so many other tracks. I could have done a top 20 easily. Yeah, for sure. Teach. All right, so there's no way that I can just do a top five Nirvana song, so or Nirvana songs. So I'm gonna try to pull one from the three major records, you know, from each each of the three major records, and then throw a couple others in there, like maybe one from Incesticides, and then like another one. So um, with with Bleach, it's kind of a tie for me between School and Downer. Downer is the last track on Bleach, and um, just he's got a he's got a cool like vulnerability to his vocals in that track and the the guitar stuff's kind of weird and nasty and yeah it's just it's sweet it's kind of metal too actually um but then let's go with uh on nevermind that's that's so tough god dang it um i'm probably gonna say come as you are just because even to this day, even if I hear that song on the radio, I have to crank it and I just get lost in that song. Just in, I don't know if it's the the key it's in and the progression or whatever it is, or his lyrics or his voice, but for whatever reason, I just get lost through that song. I, I love it. Um, Drain You, though, is like right there. Drain You is incredible. Um, From In Utero, that's also a freaking toss-up. Uh, I'm gonna say ra- between like radio friendly unit shifter and um, Soundless Apprentice, because I mean you can't deny Dave Grohl and Soundless Apprentice. That's just he's a monster on that. That's like the all star moment in that in that record. Mm-hmm. You know, like aside from their singles that everybody knows, everybody knows the like. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like drums. Yes. You, you would love that song. Um, so good. You have a drum so set right here. Uh, play it right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a A-B. It's Wake up, it, kids. Yeah. Um, and so, Incesticides, I, Downer's on that too, I think. Yes. But I, I'm going to go with... Um, I mean, I want to say aneurysm, but I'll say... Uh, Aero Zeppelin. Fuck yes. That song is incredible. Uh, that almost made my top five. Did you two yeah. just become yeah. best friends? Yeah. No, you guys don't understand, man. That song is amazing. It's so different but, from Nirvana because it feels like it should be a classic rock song. Yeah. But maybe that's maybe that's the metal one that I was thinking with the dinner, the dinner, the dinner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so that I mean, Downer. I still love Downer to death. Uh, from Bleach, but some like then my fifth song that wouldn't be on any of their major records i would say probably sappy or in other words uh the other title for that is i hate myself and want to die interesting that song is uh it's total pop song um it's kind of sad and weird but like it's uh myself (laughs) and i wanna die That's I hate myself for loving you. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> hate myself for loving you. I don't want to die. <laughs> All right. But, uh, yeah, song's cool. Mike. All right. You got some? I, like? I, I have four. Um, 
so here they are as a person that hasn't listened to a lot of Nirvana, but I yeah. wanted to be intentional about it instead of being like, oh, I'm just going to throw this shit out here and be like, oh, this is my top five. But I, I'm not that way. So You're with, good. with my listening uh, um, in no order at all, um, well, actually, uh, uh, School is probably my number one that I listen yeah, to. Yeah, school is yes. awesome, dude. Yep. Uh, I also have a You Know You're Right. Really like that. It's it's good. Yeah. Well, oh, <laughs> no, you don't like it. <laughs> I liked it. Dude, the anticipation that we all had when we knew that song was finally coming out and like waiting for that greatest hit was what? intense. It was. So it's like when I heard it, I was like, I was kind of hoping for something else i don't know what it was i don't know what i was yeah. hoping for but it wasn't i mean it's a good song it's a good song so <laughs> i'm just gonna shut up i'm just gonna shut up you're looking <laughs> at me like that. no it, i don't want to discredit your choice whatsoever that's a it, cool it, it's, it really it's, it's is a, it really is a great song but um i think i was kind of surprised on the production of the song really okay. like it um i mean the lyrics the lyrics seemed a bit incomplete like he and he, like he could have got better takes of his vocals but like um I just I was kind of hoping for something more like you know like the rawness of like in utero. I guess at the time I did not realize that they had recorded that that track um, during the Nevermind sessions. It does feel incomplete. It does, and I think that's that contributes to how I feel about that song. Yeah. I do feel it is a good song though for sure. I I would have been mad if I wrote are, that are, song. are you trying to convince yourself right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it really is. I mean, it really is, and it totally makes sense that like even though it was in. It seemed incomplete. Um, it was complete enough for them to, you know, give people something that we hadn't heard yet from Nirvana after mm -hmm. Kurt's death. You know, it was like the one thing. And I mean, I'm glad that we get to hear it. You know. Well, uh, well real quick, my other two were uh, Downer from uh, Bleach. Yeah, love that. Hell yeah, man. And uh, smells like Teen Spirit. Cool. Sweet. All right, Thanks, Rye Guy. What's yours? All right, so I I don't have a five. Oh. <laughs> I love them all. I think I think if I had to say songs that I really dig by this band that I've heard and that I go back to, I would start with All Apologies. Okay, yeah, great Heart, song. Heart Shaped Box. Song. I would say uh, Bleed. Is that the name of it? the one we started with? Breed. 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 See, you can, I, I'm green here. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, That's a banger. Breed. But Bleed is also great, too. Yeah. I don't think Nirvana wrote that, though. <laughs> Dave's a real monster on that song. Um, <laughs> Was it Slipknot? Meshuga. Oh, Meshuga. Okay. But yeah, all apologies. I just love the, the lyrics, specifically. That guitar riff feels you. Though. Yeah, the That's cello in that style. song makes it for me. The cello, I mean, the guitar riff's great, but mm -hmm. the cello just adds so much emotion to it. Heart Shaped Box is a detuned song, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's, it's a drop D. So immediately I liked that as soon as I heard it. I'm like, Isn't that like ha uh, also half step down? Oh, yeah, D flat. Oh, for sure. Then I, C yeah, I, I love drop it. Drop C sharp, yeah. Yep, of course. That makes sense. Oh, but yeah. we're musicians. <laughs> D sharp, sorry, drop D sharp. Not C sharp, D sharp. Um, but also, uh, I would say another one that I really, really dig of Nirvana's would be um, Penny Royal T, mm -hmm. which we're, is actually playing in the background. And it's not just, but I was just remembering that that was where 
I was like, of course these guys would write pop that people would love. Um, and then, yeah, I, I kind of second what you, what everyone said, school. Because mm-hmm. you, as soon as you said no reason, I was like, oh yeah, that's that was the one that I liked when I first listened to Bleach. Yeah, and was like, why don't I hear this more often? It's badass. I've always said that I would love to be in a band like, and I, actually the band I'm in now was like, we're talking about like potentially doing covers, you know, like one or two, and I was like, you guys don't want to do School by Nirvana, <laughs> and yeah, that was shot down. Oh, rude. So bummed. So, okay, guys. That's the Nirvana episode. Yay. Woo! Does there anything anyone uh, wants to mention that's going on that they might want to talk about? Um, Let's see. There's that glass field thing that's still happening. Yes. I got to hear some of it. It was pretty good. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, you can follow us on Instagram, ZNZZ Podcast. We post pictures. There should be a video of this. I took a video, but I'll have to sync it later. Um, follow our Discord. Join the Discord. It's in the descriptions. Also, rate and review, and we'll shout you out. That's coming. Um, anything else? Uh, uh, two weeks ago, we played uh, Xbox with uh, with That's some people. True. That was really fun. So twitch.tv slash Oceanic101. Link in the description as well. Jump in. Jump in. We'll do some more uh, What the Dub or Jackbox so games. I was a little drunk. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like, what should I say? He's a little drunk and he needs you now. I would say... Uh, Dead me? Yeah. Um, by the time this comes out, it'll probably be out already. Yeah, nice. well, this will come out next Friday, so the day this comes out. Oh, same day then. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, if you're listening then uh, today, Friday, August 4th, mm-hmm. um, my new band, Dead Me, Dead, it's uh, dead.me is how you kind of like spell it. Um, we're releasing a track on all streaming services. It's our first song. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, Did so, you share that with me? Was that the song you shared with me? I think it was. I think it was dynamite. Thanks, man. Thank Fucking you. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Yeah. Really appreciate that. Um, dynamite. Other, other than that, you know, I'll second, I'll second Josh and I'll say, you know, we're working on glass field stuff and it's sounding really cool. We're really excited about it. So be on the lookout for that um, later this year. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, we'll have links for that as soon as it, and once we know the release, obviously this is where you would hear that. So uh, thank you. We love you. Have a great one.
This has been a presentation of Beer City Media.